Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 11th episode of the Mercuranians podcast. Today's Tuesday, June 7th. It's 6.05 p.m. Anchorage time. My name is Stella. Um, it is 7.05 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We've got a little role reversal this week where Cam I'm is... I know. I'm finally a step ahead of this kid. I know. So that. normally we're like trying to get Stella to wake up early to record. And now it's like we, we tried to record on a different day, but I think there was I think like Mars was culminating or something. It just did not work out. So, yeah, it, Here we are uh, with attempt number two. <laughs> yes. Yes. If it fails, just start over. That's my yeah. mindset, you know, why not? Um, <laughs> we have had some pretty fascinating transits. Um, mm. Venus ingressed into Taurus. That was wonderful. That was so nice. Oh yeah, my gosh. And like was- Mars, Jupiter, and Aries right now, like the world is just like coming alive again. Like I swear I can like feel the pulse of like humanity moving again. And it just feels so alive. It just feels so good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the sun is in Gemini, too, just like facilitating all of that life. Like, yeah, the sun, like looking over its shoulder at like the boys back in fucking Aries. Like, <laughs> how y'all doing? You need and a also it's looking ahead into Cancer, right? Yeah. By Antisha, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Yes. Um, today yeah, we'll you want to introduce the topic a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So Antisha is, it's only becoming popularized again pretty recently. Um, It was used by traditional astrologers, many, many of them. Manilius was one of the first astrologers that we can trace back to using that and like speaking about it in a lot of his work. Um, We have like plenty of other astrologers in history who have used it, like Ezra and Ptolemy, but it's only really come to light, like in modern astrology, pretty recently. In the early 1900s, it was not popular by any means. Right, because I mean, pretty much, you know, by that time, the Renaissance remnants of the tradition were pretty much gone, and so we were just relying on Alan Leo's like fusion of you know theosophical views with like western astrology and so obviously we know there weren't much remnants of the tradition by that point at all Um, but obviously since you know project hindsight and the revival of traditional astrology uh, we're getting a lot of those techniques back and one of those really powerful um, methods of you know looking at the details of of chart interpretation is uh, this concept of antitia and also its counter partner the contra antitia and it's essentially you know two different ways of looking into the symmetries in your chart yeah i think that there's something that there there's room for confusion with the name antitia and contra antitia Mm -hmm. where it's like the idea of like domicile or detriment like you have one that's good and one that's not and that's not really the case yeah that's a really good point yeah, and contra antitia sounds like it's like the opposite of antitia when like opposite isn't quite the right word either. Mm-hmm. It's like a reciprocal relationship yes. because they balance. And I mean, opposites balance each other, but the contra antitia relationship between the signs, which we'll get into, um, 
it's more like there's a mutual interest that they each have in a way where like they're working together to like accomplish this like specific thing that they're signifying. Um, whereas the Antitia pairs are sort of just like two peas in a pod because of the way they reflect. And so um, talking about all these, you know, reflections and symmetries, let's get some diagrams up so we can get a little bit uh, more clear here with what we're talking about. So as you can see on this diagram here, this is, uh, we're looking at the Antitia pairs. And so in the beginning, when we were talking about those two different ways that we're finding the symmetries, those are going to be discovered through the cardinal axes. So one of the cardinal axes is the solstice axis, which is from zero degrees of Cancer at um, the summer solstice in the northern hemisphere, and then zero degrees of Capricorn, which is the winter solstice in the northern hemisphere. So this is right. the first hemisphere that we're going to be flipping and reflecting across. Right. And so like the solstice is going to be like the most summer. Mm -hmm. The winter solstice is going to be the most winter, like the dead of winter. You have the least daylight, mm -hmm. whereas in the summer solstice, you have the most daylight, the most life. So we're taking right. that axis between the most life and the least life and splitting that in half and looking at those comparisons. Right. And, and so, and so in doing that, we can see how with the tropical zodiac especially and seasons, how at different times of year, there's going to be the same amount of daylight this time of year as there is this time of year, the same amount of daylight as there is night here. So you can see how these connections can be made. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so when we're looking at these reflections, we can see their, um, you know, these pairs of these segments in each season line up with, like you said, equal light. And that's really the whole concept of Antitia is that we're finding degrees in the zodiac that share this solar sympathy or this equality in luminosity of light. And so if you think about um, just the sun transiting the zodiac every year, um, what we're actually looking at is areas where the sun would fall and we have exactly the same amount of hours of daylight. So for instance, if we just look at the very top, top, you know what I mean, the, the height of the solar light right here at 29 Gemini and zero Cancer, these two degrees are said to be Antitia because on those two days, the sun is pretty much gonna be giving the same amount of daylight in, no matter where you are. They're gonna be reflected. They're gonna have equal light. That's this whole idea of dividing across this axis here. Yeah, and so as you flank out through the flank, as you as you travel out through the zodiac, you will have that same energy in multiple different areas. You can mm -hmm. see that we have that in Gemini and Cancer, mm -hmm. in Taurus and Leo, Aries and Virgo, and then we have it continuing with Pisces and Libra, then Aqua and Scorpio, and then Capricorn and Sagittarius, finally. And so, like, one of the things with Antitia is that at face value, like, you might look at that and be like, what? Like, Aries and Virgo, like, they're not connected by element or modality. Like, that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. But then when you have something like Antitia, where you realize that Aries spring and Virgo fall share the same amount of daylight, then you can be like, oh, like, 
I do see the connection. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully as we go through some of these pairs, you can see like how these signs are similar if you do not already. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really cool because the power that Antisha gives us um, is to connect those in conjunct signs or disconnected signs or signs in aversion. And, you know, it's not like we're construing this out of nowhere. Like this is a natural legitimate feature an observational feature of the zodiac and our environment and so looking at these reflection points just like every other thing in traditional astrology when there's an observational effect that we can examine it has interpretational value in the chart no matter what kind of chart you're reading especially today like as we will kind of explore it in a natal context the idea of linking two of your planets together is going to merge those energies if they are intisha by degree so what we're going to be looking at is kind of exploring all of these sign pairs, going through the archetypal connections that they have. And then we'll also be looking at um, the different names and kind of uh, descriptions that the ancient astrologers used to give uh, meaning to how what this kind of interaction was like. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit more once we talk about the Contra and Tisha. Um, because first we're just going to be looking at these six pairs and then we're going to kind of merge everything together um, in terms of uh, commanding and seeing and obeying and perceiving and all of those things once we kind of get a grasp of both of the uh, schemes here but we're going to start off just with Antitia and so yeah I mean are you ready to talk about Gemini and Cancer? Yeah um, before I do that though I yeah. would like to just make a comment. Yeah. Um, in my research I did not see anybody like promoting using Antisha with aspects. What the primary thing that people like tend to look for I'm not going to say that there's no value to that um, but primarily what you're looking for is a conjunction. You're yeah. going to want like Antitia planets to be in close proximity to one another, and that'll show a connection that those two planets have. Yeah. And so because like we are talking about a really specific phenomena here, we're really looking for close uh, based orbs. So we're not looking at like really large orbs. So we're talking like two, three, maybe four degrees, but really sure. like one and two is going to be really powerful. Mm -hmm. um so yeah you know and the other thing that i meant to mention earlier too with this is because they're reflected like those degrees are going to be opposite so for instance when we look at scorpio and aquarius one degree of scorpio falls right at the beginning but when we reflect it when we zoom across to the other sign it's going to be the last in the final degrees of aquarius because if you think about it the reflection point of the seasons it's not at the beginning where you reflect to that point because you're going to be 30 days off if you're switching to that same degree so we're always going to be reversing it so that those degrees will like equal 30 when you add them together basically yeah mm -hmm. and you can subtract to figure that like number out if you want like be all archaic with it pen and paper but like there's plenty of different like softwares out there and like websites that will pull this up for you yeah especially astroseek which i'll just mention real quick on the traditional astrology calculator has a really beautiful um graphic that will show the points in tisha to themselves on your chart so definitely head there if you need a, a good visual for this yes and 
also thank you, Cam, for the visuals that we have today. Cam made these lovely little graphs, infographics, whatever you want to call them. They look wonderful. Yeah, yeah, we've got a couple more too. So we've got like four different ones, um, two for Antitia and Contra Antitia, and then two more um, to discuss a whole second topic, um, which we're calling quadripotence, which is sort of this unique uh, factor, which we'll get into towards the end of the episode that we're also really excited to explore. But yeah, you'll have to sit around to see those diagrams. But yeah, are you, um, you yeah. is there anything else you want to talk about with uh, Antitia in general? Um, no, we can start going into the sign pairs. Okay, cool. So let's, let's switch it up. We, we, let's start anywhere. Is there a pair you want to talk about first or? <laughs> a three for a three for I'm a like minute. my Taurus Mercury. I'm like, what? <laughs> oh, no, like, change it up. Like, no. I feel like um, Cancer Gem always just gets the hype because it's, you know. The first. Yeah. And we're also okay. there right now. So it's like, but I mean, maybe that's a good place to start because we're there. Right. Right. Like, I think. Almost okay. I think we. I know. Oh my gosh, it's coming up. I know. I know. The sun's at 17 Gemini today. So that means the Antitia of the sun today will be at 13 Cancer. Yes. So yeah. um, I vote starting with what's what's normal. Unless okay. you want to start no, with No, no, that's fine. Let's just, we'll get into it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. So Gemini Cancer. So this is a very fascinating pair. It's one of my favorites, arguably. Um, it's just so unique. You have this like lively um, mercurial energy that comes with Gemini, just this constant like search, even if there's no question that needs to be answered. And then you have the sign of cancer that is much more docile. It can be aggressive. Cancer can, crabs do have claws. It is the fall of Mars, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, what's what's so fascinating about the way that they relate is that, well, let's sit on cancer for a little bit longer. Cancer likes comfort. Cancer does not mind change, but only um, change with purpose, you know, like not changing something just for the fun of it. Um, I feel like something very apparent in um, this Antisha pair is the key words to understand. Mm. Cancer likes to understand what is happening from a more nocturnal perspective. What are the emotions at play here? What are the um, energies unfolding? Whereas Gemini is like, what is actually going on? Mm -hmm. Like what ABC, what's happening here? The blend between Cancer and Gemini allows for a lot of like really fruitful psychoanalysis, I mm. feel. Yeah, I mean, I think just the keyword you said at the end there, the psychoanalysis, like there's something about Cancer and Gemini, which is just so illuminating, like of the self, because when we're thinking about it, like it's the domicile of Mercury and the moon. And those planets have a really interesting connection because they are the lowest spheres of the planetary spheres. And so there's like this feeling that like, it's like close to like, like the expression of what we are in a way, because when we're talking about that time of the year where there's the most amount of solar energy, it's like this production of energy and this thriving of life in that way. And, and so 
it's just interesting to think about how, like, for instance, the Mercury moon connection, like in traditional astrology, they would look at those two planets to do the delineation of the soul and the personality. They would look at the Mercury moon relationship in your chart to kind of make a description of, you know, your character as you express it. And so there's something solar about that in the way that we, you know, express our moon and our Mercury in a really direct way. Whereas, you know, those higher spheres like Jupiter and Saturn operate on that like more global perspective. So they move so much quicker. So they're going to give a more individual and nuanced, um, you know, expression in, in each of our personalities. And so I think there's just that this connection between the moon and Mercury and Gemini and Cancer that's so um, accessible to analyzing how we express ourselves in a way. Yeah, definitely. And like one something that this pair makes me think of is the fact that it takes a village to raise a child. Like that phrase with Gemini being a double-bodied sign and then mm. cancer being the sign of like the womb and stuff like that. Yeah. With Mercury ruling children. Like I just feel like that phrase really jumps out with this pair. Mm -hmm. Something else that I think is interesting is like, it's the first and 12th house of the Thema Mundi. And so it's like, there's this entrance and like exit into like reality itself, where it's like, there's this um, feeling of straddling the mind and then the world around you, because it's like the moon is like the physical world, right? And fortune and things as they are physically. And then, you know, our Mercury is kind of like our, our mind internally and that connection is like our ourselves internally as we express it to other people and how we ground ourselves into our environment around us. And so there's this feeling of like Gemini and, and cancer, like this, you know, the, your thought process and, and how you make connections with people or even, you know, how you start to learn as a child, you know, it's like, these are these really early signs in the Zodiac as well. So there's something developmental and early in the stages that, that these signs kind of have their archetypes involved with as well. Like kind of like thinking of like toddler years and years, like with your family and your parents, like those really formative years of your personality that are going to be crucial to, you know, how you express yourself as a person too, that I think is relevant with it. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that you just said that like perfectly. Um, I mean, we could sit and talk about Gemini and Cancer for the rest of the episode. I know there was just two more things I wanted to say. <laughs> um, okay, so the first thing was that I actually named this pair like the architect because I feel like it has this like ability to structure things like that Cancerian nature to you know, make a womb, make a home, make a foundation, but then the Gemini's like the planner and the, the details of it. So I feel like there's a very like architectural nature to this pair where it's almost inventive in a way where it can like uh, just be able to, you know, scheme up new ideas and like make things physical that way. It's like grounding Mercury into the moon, making those ideas physical. Right. Um, but the other, yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was thinking too, those Manilius said that um, he gave like deity attributions to all the 12 signs. And he said he attributed Apollo to Gemini, the sun god. And then he attributed Hermes to Cancer. And I think that's really interesting because we see this solar connection with Gemini, right? It's almost the summer solstice. It's also the third deacon of the sign. And then also the mercurial component of Cancer, which is just interesting because if you think about the Thema Mundi, the rising bound and decan of the Thema Mundi at 15 degrees of Cancer is Mercury ruled. And so there's a really interesting like Mercury 
lunar solar swap, like with the luminaries that's happening in these two signs that just seems like there's a lot of threads that really pull it together. Right. I think I've said this before on this podcast, but I'll say it again. Um, I think that like Leo really embodies like divine masculine energy, Cancer embodies divine feminine energy, but then Gemini embodies divine androgyny. Mm-hmm. And the idea that like there is not just divine fat feminine and divine masculine, that there is something completely different that can still exist and still deserves a spot on a podium because it's so prevalent. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, that really gets a, drawn attention to it with this Antisha pair too. Yeah. So our next Antisha pair is Taurus and Leo. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you, did you want to open us up with that one? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, this is an interesting one. And I think I'll just mention it now because we're going to talk about it a lot. But all of the fixed signs are Antisha and Contra Antisha to each other. So they establish this like super like magnetic foundational relationship within the zodiac that creates this like super solid substructure and we kind of start to see that with Taurus and Leo here Um, and that's going to appear a lot as we get into all the fixed pairs but when we think about the homes of the planets here it's the home of the sun and the home of Venus so kind of like what Stella and I were talking about before this was thinking about uh, like the beauty of the material world like beauty as it's expressed um, you know, in our search for happiness in life. And because the solar principle is to radiate and shine and share. And that Venusian principle of Taurus is, you know, all about the simplistic natural beauty of the world. It's kind of like this combination is really seeking to um, like develop a self-expression or develop um, a way of being uh, that's harmonious, that's positive, um, that's like seeking, uh, you know, just like radiant beauty in all of the ways that it can. Right. And I, you know, I, I ask, like, if you think that this pair wants to develop, or if it wants to preserve that divine, like, beauty, mm. like, it wants to find it, and keep it exactly how it is, yeah. and cherish that. Like, right. and that's I also like the magnetic pulse of the fixed signs, too, right? Mm-hmm. It's stabilizing the beauty in a way. Right. And it's like, I... Like, I don't know if Taurus and Leo would be the Antisha pair to be like, okay, let's like brush up your makeup. Like, let's do these finishing touches. Right. It's definitely like, Libra Pisces. I, I was just about to say, I would put that on like Libra Pisces. Like, yeah. Taurus Leo is like the beauty that comes with the presence of a tiger. Like something mm-hmm. just so gorgeous and so powerful that like you would not think to even change Mm -hmm. for a second and I think that that is something very raw and very natural that comes with this Taurus Leo but it's so raw and so natural that like it can almost look fake like tigers if if we saw like other animals tigers would be green but because we can see them the way that they can they're orange because Mm. of our cones and our eyes and so like to jungle creatures Mm. tigers are green and like nearly invisible but to us they're this like magical beast that's super interesting i didn't know that um yeah i mean i feel like another interesting connection 
too is like just thinking about sun and venus like in venus's synodic cycle with the sun how like at her inferior conjunctions um you know she traces that pentagram in the sky over the eight-year cycle it makes a perfect five-pointed star and of course that being related to the harmonic cycle of the fibonacci sequence and the golden ratio and all these like perfect mathematical geometric harmonies that are built into her cycle with the sun i think uh, the Leo Taurus connection speaks to, you know, just in another way, that principle and that archetype of, you know, the beauty of the natural world and also like, also like our soul's involvement with it, you know, like Leo is still ourselves. And so we're supposed to participate and create beauty as well and be, you know, co-creators with that. And I think Leo Taurus just speaks a lot to, you know, being able to perform and to share and to create your art with other people and to share your art with other people. No, exactly. Because what is beauty if it's not witnessed? Mm-hmm. Like who can yeah. look at something and say, wow, that's beautiful. What is the phrase? Beauty lies in the eye of the beholder. Yes, the that's phrase. so perfect for this pair. I love that yes. so much. Yes, that yeah, is... that's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I think <laughs> that was a great end to yeah. the Yeah. Yeah. Oh, one thing, Sun Venus lot gives the lot of beauty as well, which is just mm. interesting. Yeah. So lots uh-huh. of threads to this these concepts. Mm-hmm. Um oh and sorry, actually one more thing. <laughs> the so Taurus is the exaltation of the moon as well. Mm. So it's like the moon being that you know principle of physical fortune. It's almost like nature wanting to show off its beauty you know like having beautiful flowers and meadows and sunsets and like intricate like iguanas and like the creation of all these like insane you know animals and and trees and plants and flowers and like nature just like showing off its proportional harmonies that make it so beauty beautiful I think just is kind of like the theme with this one I agree I do agree yeah so you want to start this This one yeah this is a little bit of a tone change from taurus leo Mm -hmm. like we've got the same elements but um i hope that you guys can feel like the kind of discordance that comes with just like the idea of that and like i don't want to say discordance in the sense that like it's not perfect but like something that comes up with this pair is like the amount of effort it takes to get something where you want it to be in terms of how well it's going to perform and like Aries Virgo we had this whole discussion in our last episode about accuracy versus precision with the mutable signs Aries is what forces Virgo to be precise. Like Aries is fueling that fire. It's what lets Virgo keep going until it can get the same spot on the bullseye over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Aries is that hidden fire behind like the archer with with its arrow ready to fly, right? And, you know, it's like, we're still looking at fire and earth. Like you said, we're looking at the same elements with this pair as we are with Leo Taurus. But in this case, it's like we're looking at the Mars-Mercury pairing. And what's really interesting about that is um, this idea of like having a full, broad sweep of the signs from the beginning of 
the northern period, which is Aries through Virgo, but like it's the completion of all of those signs of the spring and summer seasons, which are the seasons of more light. And so there's like this um, kind of rounding out um, your experiences of like, um, in a way, it's like your knowledge, that your collected knowledge from uh, your external experiences, whereas those internal experiences will be reflected on these pairs from the winter and autumn periods. So I feel like the connection of Mars and Mercury can speak to like that competitive nature where it's like, I've learned this and I know how to use it. And it's like, Aries is supplying that motivation and that fire that Virgo receives and uses, like you said, for precision in that way. Right. And like, I think that Virgo and Aries like love competition. Like every single yeah. person I can think of who has this Antisha pair will like scream at me for air hockey. And like, <laughs> I'm, I love that. Like I'm down with it, but um, I, cause I have this Antisha pair um, between my IC and my son. And so um. I, I experienced that too with like the like just like need for perfection and like the need to do something to the best of your ability mm -hmm. like I don't know if perfection like I feel like the word is kind of cliche but like just the desire to get something to the best that you can get in it like being passionate about something to that degree mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, like when we think about like Mercury in traditional astrology ruling over competitions in general and games, and then Mars being the the warrior fighter archetype, it's like there's that this fusion of, um, it, in a way, it could be a little mischievous because I feel like Mars might bring out those more like negative sides of Mercury that will definitely make him a little bit more of a trickster and you know a game player. And so there's that motivation to win that will maybe make someone, you know, bend the rules a little bit because with Mars Mercury, like we get lots, like for instance, the lot of theft is one that we get from this combo too. So it's like, there's a, an idea of going to the extremes for the sake of being the victor. And so like, I called it this pair, like the gamer, because I really feel like there's that um, intent on uh, kind of being, you know, coming out at, at number one and being able to show your show off your precision and your your accuracy in, in that way right exactly and like this is making me think of board games and mm, how yeah. like board games are some of the oldest like things that we have of human society like mm. before we had the wheel before any of that like people were playing board games yeah and I think that that is very fascinating mm -hmm. especially when talking about this pair yeah really yeah and so like the other thing with this pair is we're looking at the exaltation of the sun in Aries with the exaltation of Mercury in Virgo and so that combination is really bringing together like the synthesis of like this really powerfully like self-determined bold expression and like it's that boldness asserting itself onto the dexterity of Virgo, because when we're looking at the, you know, the way these signs are communicating, it's Aries seeing Virgo. And that's actually something that we should have mentioned earlier. Yeah, we did we'll talk about it now, because I guess it wasn't, it didn't come up. But anyway, 
the signs that we're looking at from Capricorn to Gemini are the ones that are seeing the signs from Cancer to Sag. And this is because these signs from Capricorn to Gemini, where the light is increasing towards the summer solstice, are the seeing signs. And then the signs from Cancer to Sagittarius are the perceiving signs. And so the other names that we have are the signs of short ascension for Capricorn to Gemini, and then the signs of long ascension from Cancer to Sagittarius. And we'll explore that principle in depth once we get into Contra and Tisha. But for right now, all you need to know is that the signs of short ascension are seeing the signs of long ascension, which are perceiving the signs of short ascension. So basically, Aries sees Virgo, and Virgo like perceives Aries, like it knows it's right. being. Seen. Well, because so let's let's think about the idea of the natural world and how that relates to this. Because mm -hmm. if we take um, when when you have more light, when the world around you is increasing in light, you have the ability to see, and sight is arguably the most important sense um, across the animal kingdom. And when you lose light, you lose sight a lot of the time. And so you have to resort to other senses. Can you feel, can you hear? Like how can you perceive this thing without seeing it? Mm -hmm. And so that kind of, that's another piece to the puzzle that is this um, Antisha relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, the final thing I was thinking about with Aries Virgo is that with them both exalting the Sun and Mercury, the Sun-Mercury combination um, is going to give the lot of the soul's freedom. And so I think it really speaks to that like warrior archetype, like winning reality, like winning the game of life in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if there's one thing about Aries, Virgo, and Tisha, it's like, I want to be the best because this is about me. Like my success has nothing to do with beating you. Mm -hmm. And like, that's something that you can get with like Aries and like Scorpio energy. I feel like especially like Scorpio wants to win because they want to beat you. Yeah. But with this Aries Virgo, it's like my own standards, whatever houses these fall in, whatever it may be in this area of life are up to here and mm -hmm. I am going to do what I can to meet these standards time and time and time again mm -hmm. yeah I feel like it's also because like Virgo's like just about to fall into Libra like which is the beginning of autumn and so it's almost like the sun being exalted in Aries seeing this area where like it's about to be detrimented or fallen literally and it's like let's get like let's get it all done like let's like let, let's shoot for the target like let's I don't want to like lose my light right so it's like this final attempt to like express itself and like you know have that precision and, and and focus and direction and energy you are so right there is something very frantic about this antisha pair like something that just constantly feels like the clock is running out like the clock is ticking it needs to get done i need to do it i need to do it i'm running out of time yeah and I, yeah and i think that that also can come up with the capricorn sag a lot too the feeling of like oh my gosh I'm running out of time yeah, yeah. um did you want to move on to Pisces Libra I'll let yeah. you introduce this one okay 
Um, so this pair of Antitia signs, we have Libra and Pisces, and this is definitely uh, Venusian, like AF, because <laughs> um, we're looking at the home of Venus in Libra and then her exaltation in Pisces. And so right off the bat, we're like looking at this pleasure principle. And on top of, you know, Pisces being her exaltation, you know, it's already the home of Jupiter. So we're looking at the home of both of the benefics here, which is a very comfortable, very lavish, very extravagant in some senses. Um, way with, of Mar with Mars debilitated in, Pi in Libra too. Um, yeah. yeah, like you have foot off the gas, mm. you're just kind of cruising. Yeah, I think it definitely can speak to the, the ways like the benefics can do harm too, though. Like too much of anything is not a good thing. And the Libra Pisces is like, loves to live in excess of physical pleasure, I think. As yeah. a Pisces native here, guilty as charged. Son right. <laughs> do you have any exact Antitia? Uh, my moon's closely in Pisces Antitia to my Libra Mercury, but it's within like five degrees, so it's not exact. I gotcha, I gotcha. But it's it's resonant, there's an it's energy still, there. I mean, yeah. The thing is, the thing is like, we're talking about looking at planets that are really in a tight orb Antitia, and it's just going to merge the themes like that they're going to see each other and if those planets normally couldn't they do and you'll know it and it'll connect their house rulerships it'll connect the two houses they're in etc etc but on a really general level there are ways we can make storytelling with the co-presence or not sorry not co-presence just the presence of any two planets in signs that are Antitia they can still connect if they normally couldn't. And they're gonna be connecting through these themes we're talking about. So while it's like, yeah, you know, the Antitia is not exact. It's like, I still have three planets in Libra and my sect light angular in Pisces. And so the theme is still extremely strong. You know what I mean? That was something super important that we totally glazed over earlier is that like the relevance of the planets that are involved in this antitial relationship will totally speak to how loud it is and like the kind of orbs that you want to use and stuff like that. Like using your example, like that's your sect light and your chart ruler. So like, of course, that's going to be loud in your life, you know, with me, like my Aries sun and my IC, like I have no other planets in Virgo and like that's my son so like of course that's going to be like a constant theme it's just like constantly feeling like I'm running out of time because like whatever it may be but then like if it was like I don't know like I don't know you get what I'm saying you guys you guys understand yeah. I don't if like you that have like, if it's like your ascendant ruler or your sect light or maybe your IC ruler and it's tied into like your home story somehow. Like, I mean, just, just consider, you know, what relevance these planets have and then think about how they merge through the Antitia pair. Like, are you looking at, you know, the ruler of your seventh with a planet in your second house? And it's speaking about some, you know, connection between your partnerships and how you have to go about making, you know, money or something. It's like, there's going to be a connection based off of their locations, their rulerships. And you really have to think about, you know, what are these planets in charge of and what are they doing and how does that merge in with the you know story that the the sign pair is trying to communicate exactly and then like even without planets 
how do these two areas of life relate to one another when you have empty houses? Like, what can this relationship tell you about if you're reading for yourself, yourself, but if you're reading for a client, the native, like what story can you glean from this? And this is just another way to glean information from the natal chart. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like what I, or what were you going to say? I was going to talk a little bit more about like Libra. Pisces. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so. Okay. So Libra Pisces is very elaborate, like just very um, embellished, very, there's a lot of finer detail that comes with that. Like the whole idea of ambiance, I feel like can definitely be incorporated in this because ambient lighting will set such a nice mood, such a great tone. And then, but like, what do you need for ambient lighting? Like somebody has to turn on the light switch. Like somebody has to set these things up. And like, I think that that can definitely come with um, the diurnal energy of Libra as like, um, like Pisces wants this like relaxed, this pleasure. And so like Libra like will initiate that and like Libra will seek it out or Libra will touch up your makeup. It's not going to be like this tiger, this like raw, just visceral beauty that like you don't have to touch. It's beauty that you touch because you want to touch it. It's beauty that can be more beautiful and why wouldn't why not make it more beautiful you know like Taurus Leo sees a tiger and says wow that's gorgeous I should never touch it but then like Pisces Libra sees a tiger and is like wow that's gorgeous I wonder what it would look like if I painted its claws or you know what this would look great with a Cuban link collar you know yeah, I think like as you were saying about it, like the connection to someone else, like I feel like Aries Virgo is so self-reliant in a lot of ways, whereas like Libra Pisces needs that external connection to validate itself as a mirror for other people. Like I feel like this, like like the literal idea of reflection is so strong with these signs because we're looking at Libra, which is all about, you know, balance in relationships. And then Pisces is just like the, eternally reflecting water and so there's this like connection between these two that is so um you know I called this one I I had a few names for this one but one of them was the hedonist (laughs) the other one was like patron of the arts because I think those are like a great um like appreciation for um art and beauty that, that accompanies this pair but the other one I feel like is also the hopeless romantic because there's this continual desire and longing to have partnership because the interesting thing with this pair is it's the exaltation of Venus and Saturn and those two planets give a lot of marriage because when you think about that combo it's like relationships romance partnership intimacy Venus with the stability endurance and like uh, long-term you know focus of Saturn and so I think this connection is like continually exalting it's continually looking up for and reaching for and striving for that like connection and partnership with other people right right a hundred percent and like um Libra I mean Taurus Leo says beauty is in the eye of the whole beholder Mm. but Pisces Pisces Libra says what is beauty if I can't share it 
Like, what is the point of myself witnessing something so gorgeous if it can't be shared with anyone else? Like, there's almost this, like, selflessness that kind of comes with it, where it's like, this is meant to be enjoyed by so many people. Like, it disappoints me if I'm the only one who gets to see this beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, too, like, when you think about, and and we're going to talk a little more about, like, these quadrants, because, like, Aries, Pisces, Libra, and Virgo all reflect each other and they make like their own quad group. Right, quadrupotence. Yes, that's the whole concept that we'll get into towards the end. But when you think about Aries, Virgo, that's going to be the detriment and fall of Venus compared to the domicile and exaltation. And so there's also this contrast where we're looking at, you know, Venus being so comfortable in the union and in the partnership versus Aries Virgo, which is seems to be so independent and so self, um, you know, so autonomous. Yeah. And all right. Um, so are you ready to talk about Aquarius and Scorpio? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so Aquarius and Scorpio, like one of the key words that comes up with this is patience. Like, I feel like Aquarius and Scorpio, that is a very patient combination and it will wait and it will wait you out. You know, like if we're going to put an enemy in the picture, like I know that that gets put with Scorpio, that like Scorpio will like hold out against Aries in a fight, but like throw Aquarius in there and like the sweet revenge oh yes and it will be perfectly timed Mm -hmm. aqua Scorpio um very much rings to me like a Venus flytrap or a pitcher plant might be better um where we have this like brilliant creation of carnivorous consumption that Mm -hmm. is literally just a plant with a bunch of liquid in the bottom of it, with the fixed water and that event invention that is Aquarius. Yeah. And then bugs like slip on it. It's so slippery that the bugs literally fall into the stomach of the pitcher plant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you you give that analogy because what I wrote about Libra Pisces and Aqua Scorpio, I call Libra Pisces like the comfy couch and Aqua Scorpio is like the bed of nails. Because with these two, we're looking at the home of Mars and the home of Saturn. So contrasting the home of the benefics together versus the home of the two malefics. And so the energy exchange between these two signs is like this very intense, and it's not all extremely negative, right? Like I don't want to give this extremely like negative view of these planets, um, but like we have to acknowledge that like there's like the, the malefics really have to work well together. Um, to make really fruitful, positive things happen with these two signs, which it can, which it absolutely can. Because just real quick, like Chris Brennan, like, thank you. Like, we're right. not trying to drag you <laughs> or any other Aqua Scorpio people out there. We love you. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's like when we're thinking about these signs, like it's the fall of the moon in Scorpio and the detriment of the sun in Aquarius. So it's like, it's this very debilitating place for the luminaries, which are the places of life. And so it's this like very dangerous place um, to like have this antisha in the sense that it is destroying something to like transform it, right? It's like trying right. to kill it so that it can bring out its strongest survival tactics. 
Right. And like, let's think about like the dead of winter, which like we're not quite at the death yet, mm. but like Scorpio season yeah. in the ancient days, that's when everybody was hoarding food. Like that mm. is when you are collecting everything to try and make it through the winter. Mm. By Aquarius season, like that supply is starting to dwindle. Yeah. Yeah. That's when people are allotting like very small servings. And that's when you have to get inventive, you know, like it takes a degree of pressure, a degree of discomfort to invent, you know, like there needs to be some kind of something that could be easier, that could be better for an invention to happen. And that is something that came with the Scorpio Aqua like Scorpio Aqua is not here to reinvent the wheel Mm -hmm. Scorpio Aqua is here to figure out how to lab make meat so that we don't die as an entire human population so that we have meat to eat in the way that it needs to be sustained I know meat what I was gonna say though is like you were saying and you know branching off of what we were saying before about it just being a generally difficult place for life to thrive you know these conditions in that time of year uh force that inventiveness and force that um resourcefulness resourcefulness and like almost creativity but like not in the same way that libra pisces has its creativity because this is a creativity that's so much more primal and instinctual like if you think about like aqua scorpio artists it's going to be like way more like abstract or dark or like um what's the word like visceral um emotions that they're going to be extracting whereas libra pisces are like just the the transcendentalists writing about nature and their poems about the sky and the rainbows and whatever you know so it's like it's way more real and and intact tactile in that way i feel like right like there's something like um like the starving artist I feel like is a really good one. I do think that's Aqua Taurus too, which we'll get into. Oh, because that speaks to the so right. That is way better. Think about the Leo Taurus and Tisha being like the thriving artist. Taurus Aqua, I feel like, is kind of like the artist, like going against society, like doing, like like starving to just make its own art and go against like the the hatred of of everyone else and being resilient. But anyway, the Aqua Taurus though. I'm sorry, the Aqua Scorpio, I feel like. And like, I don't know if artist is even the right word because there's something very delicate about art, but Mm -hmm. like, this isn't delicate, like this is fragile. Like, Mm -hmm. this isn't just like, be careful to preserve it. It's like, if you break this, like we will die kind of a thing. Like there's an element of, pressure and survival that comes with it and like though that might not be the real world situation that you're in Mm -hmm. wherever these houses fall in your chart you might have that kind of mindset where you're like end all be all like it needs to be secure it needs to be safe it needs to be able to survive through the winter this is like a doomsday prepper energy yeah because the name I gave this one was the misanthropist. So like, you know, someone who hates people, right? And so not that if you have this, you hate people, but it's like, it's that principle of like degrading life in general. It's like, it's that inner instinct that needs to fight for itself in that way. Right. And like, 
Aquarius season being like the dead of winter, it's like that energy, it's fixed still. So it's like, we don't want spring yet. Like we don't want- We want to rot. <laughs> yeah. And like, there can be like, let's throw, like if, if we're looking at it in a natal chart or something, like let's say we've got like Venus and the moon there, like that might suck, but like there will be this like just- appreciation and like beauty in pain and beauty in the macabre that is not as common and there's something so extraordinary about being able to find pleasure and find gorgeous things in something that is so far from it to everyone else yeah like I have this in six and nine so I feel like in a lot of ways it's about me like having to fight against those normal impulses for like regular jobs or like regular, um, you know, ways of living in general and doing things in the world. The other, the other reason I'm mentioning is because I have my midheaven into the ninth as well. So it's like, it's bringing that connection of, you know, how I'm being seen out in the world, fighting against this principle of me sustaining what I want to do for my survival aka you know me doing what satisfies you know myself as opposed to the expected you know pleasant leo taurus you know opposite of this which is just you know the regular way of doing right right well because like aqua scorpio can take a no and make it a yes like they'll make it their own yes like they'll find a way to live within the no Mm -hmm. and so yeah yeah definitely um yeah i don't really have much else to say about this um do you want to move into um our final pair yeah yeah this is a really unique one this one is honestly i think a little bit trickier to assimilate meaning into um but there's a few things that make some connections that i think are really enlightening to this pair go ahead oh okay um so like the first thing i think of is we're looking at the home of jupiter and the home of saturn so we're looking at these outer planet energies and with jupiter specifically we're looking at his preferred domicile in sagittarius and then the sign of his fall and so i feel like there's this relentless striving um that is searching to um i guess it's almost like how can i contribute to society like that's that jupiter saturn principle um but like through the adversity of like me taking you know my hardships and life lessons that have you know been extremely you know made my life full of strife and then how can i like give back and like condense my wisdom into something easy for like future generations to use um, and like prosper off of. Right. And like, I, this is very much like I am laying, like this is like I walked so that he could run. Yes. Like, yes. yeah, I am laying this foundation mm. in the hopes that you can take it and do something better with it. Right. Like yeah. this is the teacher who wants their students to do better than they did. Mm-hmm. The parent who wants their kids to have a better life than they did. Yeah. And 
taking what you have and like with these signs being like so dark in winter too it's like taking what you have and making something better of it and like that comes with like these last two pairs especially with the incorporation of the malefics of course but then like Jupiter being there is like this little like beacon you know like we've got Scorpio and like Capricorn and Aquarius and then like Jupiter like Sagittarius like just trying to do what it can Mm -hmm. to bring you up out of the dark like Jupiter and Sagittarius is able to make a campfire Mm -hmm. you know and like use that to help you through the cold of winter right it's interesting that Sag comes at like the darkest like time of the year in a lot of ways because it's like it's the darkest least amount of light and it's getting less and less and less still so Sag is like that I feel like intrinsic reaction to um like remembering Gemini like the beauty of like having the most amount of light and it's still getting longer right that opposition is really interesting there but in this case when we're thinking about Sag longing for that light and then being um, you know, perceiving Capricorn, it's like it's already telling, it's already getting the sixth sense that like there's this harder time that's still coming. So like, what can I do to like prioritize the moment now to like get myself ready for that? And in that way, I think that Sag perceiving Capricorn is almost like the perceiving the future hardships and the future generations. And like, what can I, you know, muster up from my skills to, you know, prepare for that and what's to come in that way? Yeah, yeah. And like, um, when we talk about like bearing the torch, Mm -hmm. like that is both a literal and a metaphorical thing, like, with the loss of light that comes in the season, like you need fire, you need some kind of light source that you have to come up with. Mm -hmm. But bearing the torch is also like a traditional thing. Like I'm passing this on to you, like you are now the torch bearer. Mm -hmm. And so with this combination, like it's like the grandpa, like telling the son or like the grandson, like, war stories and then like the grandson ends up in a war and like is able to use and like reflect on like some of the things that their grandpa said and like something else that comes with this pair is the relationship between hope and despair like in order to have hope for a better future there needs to be a not so good reality you know and like in order to dream something up, like there's a reason you're dreaming, you know, there's a reason that Sag explores, you know, and when you don't have the element of sight, you rely on your other senses, and Sag has, with the animal nature too, that comes with Sag, Sag can do that, like Sag can go out it at dark in the night and find something to bring back, you know, like even if they're hunting at night, like they will be able to get something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so like the, you know, the name I gave to this one was the philanthropist. And so I feel like that principle of trying to build the future really kind of speaks to Capricorn seeing Sagittarius. So like that, you know, pragmatic principle you know, putting itself onto the optimism and that combination and the fusion of those two energies being that like really productive and 
you know, in one way, like evolved and mature uh, way of looking back on life to, you know, be realistic, but also like have solid uh, expectations without being like too negative about it and not being so realistic that like you drown yourself out of making progress. Right, right. That's a really good point because in order to build a better future, you still need to have hope in a future. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can't just be all like listless and nihilistic and like, oh, the winter's never going to end. Like, I know we keep coming back to the same analogy, but like, yeah. it makes sense. That's like, the energy here. It really is, you know. Uh-huh. Well, and like, that's something so relevant about astrology and like these archetypes is you have to think about like what was going on in the world like when they were shaped and like how that is relevant in society today Mm. because it's still there it's just not as explicit yeah I think the the other unique thing with this pair too is like the concept of teamwork because Sag is the first collective sign so it's the first sign in that mutable evolution of the zodiac or the third phase of it and this is where we start to you know use our communities and the groups that we're a part of um, as a resource and not just you know our partner you know it's where we come together as a group mind and use those collective ideas and collective resources for collaboration to evolve you know as a collective in that way yeah yeah because these are the social planets Mm -hmm. they are that really is emphasized like the fact that this is bigger than you and the recognition and comfort with that you know like being okay with the fact that something is bigger than you are Mm -hmm. and like when we contrast that with the gemini cancer like sag um i mean cap sag says well this is something that everybody's going through Mm -hmm. and this is a shared burden and then gemini sag says well okay but i don't care what other people are going through like i need to fix my own situation like i need to look at my own needs like if we all do this as a society, that's fine. But Gemini Cancer is much more personal mm-hmm. than the Cap Sag. Right. Because Cap, I'm sorry, Cancer Gemini is the end of that personal evolution, the first four. And then Sag Cap is the first two of the collective phase. So there's that reflecting between, um, in this sense, like the most evolved self with like the most initial phase of the group-minded thinking phase, if that makes sense. Like before it's merged all as a union in Pisces, it's like the, whoa, okay, we're now like a village and we have like other villages that are around here too that we're like trading with now. And like Uh, we can use each other's resources to help get through the winter. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. Well said. So Um, I think that that's a really good transition into Contra and Tisha. 